Uh, the first one is from the Gospel of Luke. Do we have it on the screen or no? I'll look it up. Thank you. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him into his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, Mary, this child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. The second reading is from Micah, chapter 3, 9 through chapter 4, 7. Hear this, you rulers of the house of Jacob and chiefs of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with wrong. Its rulers give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets give oracles for money, yet they lean upon the Lord and say, surely the Lord is with us, no harm shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be ploughed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised up above the hills. People shall stream to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid. <coughs> For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. <clears throat> for all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. The lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion now and forevermore. For the word of the Lord. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Joshua. Uh, I'm on staff here at St. Tom's, and uh, it's a joy to preach to you in the season of Advent. Simeon uh, was, at the time of Jesus, just before 
Jesus was born. That's part of the early story of Luke's gospel, telling about Jesus coming into the world. And he is someone who was waiting. So the question is, what was he waiting for? The answer is that he was waiting for the promise in the law and the prophets and the writings. And today we're going to take one of those uh, bits of the Bible that spoke about this promise that everyone at Jesus' time was waiting to be fulfilled. And this is part of a, a four weeks uh, looking at what it is that people were waiting for, what it is they really got when Jesus turned up on the scene, what God would like us to do about that, Jesus' arrival in the world, and what it is that we still await. So let's begin with this promise. What is this promise in the Old Testament which Simeon and all people in Jesus' time were waiting for? Well, all you really need to know about the book of Micah is that Micah is a prophet. Prophet just means a messenger of God. And in the midst of, you know, religious, geopolitical, social upheaval, Micah is calling out some, some bad behavior and he's telling everyone what will happen if this continues. And we start clearly at some bad behavior in verses 9 to 11. Hear this, you rulers of the house of Jacob and the chiefs of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build Zion with blood, Jerusalem with wrong. Its rulers give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets give oracles for money. Rulers, priests, prophets. They're all leadership roles. But the actions of these leaders are just not up to scratch. They abhor justice. They pervert equity. It's corruption on a political, social, and religious, of a religious kind and scale. It's a bad day amidst the people of God. Indeed, the list of problems that are named in this passage are pretty significant, pretty long. I mean, that's long. That's a lot going on. That's a lot to be sad about. That's a lot that the people of God have to suffer and the world has to suffer. It's kind of amazing that nothing has essentially changed from 700 BC to today, but for all those problems, the focus point is that the leadership leads everybody else in this way. There's another part of the Bible that names a similar problem. It's supposed to be fixed by now, for all God has done, but in her early life, the people of God said, in those days there was no king in Israel, all the people did what was right in their own eyes. Yet when they had all their leaders, well, they led them astray too. One of the reasons that the Bible puts forward that we do so much damage in the world to ourselves and to each other is that we don't know where we are supposed to be going. And so we don't know who to follow for how we would get somewhere better than here. We don't know where we're going. We don't know who can take us there. And that creates a strong sense of anxiety, of worry, and a fretful, fitful searching for someone who would take us in the way that we are supposed to go. We do not know which way 
is the way to peace. We do not know which path is the path to happiness, which course is the course to justice. And this state we can clearly, fairly call confusion. And confusion reigns. Those rulers, remember the rulers, the uh, priests, the prophets, those rulers are still our problem. Rulers not really too dissimilar from our politicians. Australian culture loves to blame political leaders, loves it, can't get enough. But most of the politicians we have and know, I think, at least started out with some kind of public interest in mind and they wouldn't have gotten to where they are without the ability to convince us that they, they have somewhere to take us, somewhere to go, and they can kind of help us to get there. But in the end, they make choices with ambiguous beneficiaries. Their motivations of partnerships and concessions and interests are all too far away from us for us to have confidence that these political leaders will do what has never been done before and lead us into peace. Confusion about which party, which independent, which policy, which politics can help us. And confusion reigns. Those priests are still our problem. In their world, priest was not like now, a small private group's leader. They were public and culture-setting people, much more like our academics and intellectual leaders of our world. They set the definitions of how we see the world. They define how truth is accessed and understood. And they get to say what is authoritative and what is not. Clearly, the amount of intellectual paths in front of us just aggravate our confusion. Should we follow Hegel and be progressivists? Follow Anne Rand and be selfish? Follow Karl Marx and be collectivist? Should we follow Peter Singer and be vegans? Whose textbook? Whose philosophy? Confusion reigns. And their prophets are still our problem too. The self-proclaimed prophet of their world spoke about the present and what the present meant for the future. They talked about what was the case and how people should act. And believe it or not, those in our time who most approximate to this are the comedians. No, really, they lead us to imbibe what we should hold in contempt and what we should hold dear, what is laughable and to be derided and what is honourable and to be defended. Right-wing comedians holding free speech in defence and honour, left-wing comedians holding sexuality in defence and honour and both deriding the other. With thousands of their podcasts and streaming specials, millions of short videos, holding so much in derision and holding so much else in subtle honour, they capture our assumptions. We cannot say what they have led us to believe and so confusion reigns. So Micah diagnoses our condition in this world as confused, as lost. We don't know where to go, we don't know who to follow, we don't know where we can find someone who can take us to someone better. And this confusion problem has a moral heart which every human being is responsible for creating. 
Everyone wants to make money, to use what is sacred for self-advancement and to position themselves as the leader of what is right. And we are in the same way. That's quite a diagnosis, but is that the end? Verse 12 of our passage says, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be ploughed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. The setting of Micah is actually a court case. Uh, In the opening of the book, God calls his people to court for demanding defence of her actions, and they face the scrutiny of God for her life, what she has done with it. And we've already considered the evidence that God finds, and here is something kind of more like a sentencing. Zion, Jerusalem, the mountain, they mean much the same thing. The city of God. And it shall become a heap of ruins. That is the judgment for the confusion that fractures her. What Micah tries to wake everyone up to is the fact that they are not safe just because they are God's people in the beloved city. There's no special shield against the consequences of someone's behaviour which make one absolutely invincible. Our actions do ripple out into the world. And if our actions are making the world progressively confused with ever-growing layers of complexity that increase the confusion, is it good for God to let this go on? Well, not forever. No, though maybe for a time. The only end to the reign of the confusion is a judgment that is part of what God is promising. The first part of what we awaited before Jesus, what Simeon is waiting for, is a judgment, an end to confusion. As all the facts are brought to light, all the spin is taken away, all the dark and unknowns made known, And only with a universal judge can this take place. Now, I could ask you what you think will happen to you at this judgment, but confusion reigns. We could easily justify all the choices in our own life. But the promise here is that we are subject to the judgment. It depends not at all what I think about it, But God communicates this to us in a way that we can understand the sufficient facts that we are to be subject to a judgment of our human creations, the lives that we have actually lived. The judgment is that our lives have mattered. Our lives have been incredibly important. All our decisions are significant and weighty. Life matters. That is the judgment. All too much, perhaps. Confusion reigns, but at verse 12, we are told that there is an eventual end. Confusion reigns until, well, until what? Chapter 4 suddenly swings us into a sudden lurching surge upwards into something totally different. The judgment was a clear word, a punctual, piercing statement of brisk, brusque, fact. But now, in chapter 4, there's this prosaic, long, descriptive wooing in our ears. 
in days to come. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised up above the hills. People shall stream to it and many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Promise. At some future time, that's only hinted at, it's just called in days to come, there will be a place to go. And it is the place where one day everyone will be sure that answers can be found. All the answers to our confusions and griefs with one another, so much so, so clear and obvious is this place that people are described as going happily together to find out the truth. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. How great is this reversal? No longer does confusion reign, but God reigns. And this reign means that we all have a a place of possible reconciliation, a confident place to go to find out the truth of things, a confident source of learning for how we can live together after all that has been done to us and that we have done to others. Confusion reigns until God reigns. When he reigns, people are at peace. When God is the common source of our journeying, then all things will be well. Now, why does Simeon wait for this? Because it's good. He shall judge between many peoples and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall all sit under their own vines and their own fig trees. And no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Imagine if the tanks were melted down into farm tools and all the gates and bars were smelted for sculpture. Imagine if defence budgets were distributed for housing and engineers were recommissioned for making really good roller coasters. (laughs) It is a world where there is no war, for confusion no longer reigns, but God reigns. In that kingdom, there can be no shortage of empathy or wisdom. And they shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Everyone will have a place to call home. Everyone will have a little portion of the world that they have grown and made their own. It is the snapshot of everlasting peace, Somehow, I don't really know how, but in the West, the shorthand vision of heaven uh, became sitting on clouds and playing harps. But this is the Old Testament snapshot vision of the good, new, wonderful kingdom. Each person sitting happily under the shade of the fruit tree, their own sufficient portion. This was peace. Confusion reigns until God reigns. Put simply in verse 5, for all the peoples walk 
each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Judgment comes, but swiftly following the judgment is the reign of God in which confusion is, has already been taken away. And all now can find the way in the leading of God at his point of everlasting rule, his holy city. And how we pray for this to be true in the holy city today. Over the next few weeks, we'll be talking about how Jesus answers this promise. But today, know that this is the promise. This is the promise that the Old Testament finishes on. This is what everyone in Jesus' time is waiting for. This is what hope God himself held out to the world. This is what he said would happen in this very nondescript in those days. The description of what's wrong in the world is that confusion reigns and the promise is twofold. A judgment until that God would put an end to the confusion. It's not good that we continue to walk further and further apart from each other. But following this judgment is this new way, a new kingdom where God reigns as king. Confusion does reign until God reigns. Now we'll get to all the interesting questions like doesn't Jesus come as the answer to the promise of God, so why is the world still confused, etc. But for now, we just have to notice that God has promised this. And then we waited for the promise, the answer to the promise, for like ages. And we still await the total dispelling of this confusion. And it's just kind of interesting on its own that, that God did it this way, that God described to us the problem and instead of doing what the promise is about straight away, but made the promise and put us in this position of waiting for a promise. Like that's kind of, I don't know if it's weird, but it's kind of interesting. But all promises are made for either one or both of these reasons. To comfort or to warn. Promises are made to assure or to comfort us when something that is not now, but will be the case, will come, that will relieve our worry or our pain or our hurt. Promises of assurance and comfort are for saying to us with, with firmness, now is not the end. The end is better. Promises of warning are the same. Now is not the end. But they say that they say that to those who make the present rough. You're on top now, but you won't always be. You're in control now, but it won't always be so. This is not the end. So a promise of this kind to those in the midst of confusion says, don't worry. Clarity will come. You are not doomed to confusion. And a promise of this kind says to those who cause the confusion, worry. Clarity will come. You are not assured of your position. For us in our own lives, we are invited into a 
simplicity. Just this, just know one thing. You know, for an Anglican priest, I'm really not that sure of many matters of faith. I've got lots of uncertainties. But whenever those uncertainties of mine or of others have caused me a restless night or a restless week, I don't let the world throw its confusion into the heart of it all. And so when we get to this point of the liturgy, I always find myself kind of recalibrated on this. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. But you see, confusion reigns. And that's a real problem. But confusion reigns until God reigns. And his reign has begun in Christ. So come out of the confusion of the world and into the simple confidence of just one thing, Jesus. In our, in our lives as Christian people, it doesn't really make sense for us to add to the world's confusing din of voices, crying out, I'm right, I know this, this person's evil, this one's good, I am the light of knowledge. But we don't really have to be these kind of moral sages in our world, playing its own game of confusing, loud, crying voices. I think we all need to learn to repent of weaponizing confidence or rhetoric and admit it, that our world is confusing, is very confusing. And take that stance without a shrill finger pointing, but instead an invitational, humble attitude of Come here, Jesus, with me, because that's all I know. And of course, I say this to you as someone with some pretty strong opinions about stuff that I don't really know that much about. It's a bit like music. I've got some really strong opinions on music. I don't know anything about music, really. Each one of us must learn, I think, not to play this game of shouting with shrillness into the world about what is right, but instead put our confidence in Jesus' death resurrection and promise to come again and make this the one central point of our knowledge and living. Now I know that I've set up much more of a problem than I'm solving here so please do come speak to me after the service about all these epistemological problems which I have raised but this is the Christian invitation to look at Jesus, a person in our history and let that one mere historical fact make all other facts answer too. So together, let's say this last uh, line on that slide there. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let's pray. Lord our God, we live amidst confusion and we thank you for your promise that it will not go on forever. We pray that you would deliver to us your promise of a unity of heart and mind and that you would deliver to the whole world the clear reality of yourself as king, the world, your kingdom, and us invited to be your children. In Jesus' name we